0: Women's News embarks on its third decade as the only global nonprofit news organization reporting on the most crucial issues impacting women and girls around the world so that we may continue to shape how women and girls are represented in the media toward creating a more equitable world that honors, respects, and supports the lives of women and girls by seeking the truth and reporting it, acting independently with accountability and transparency thank you for tuning in.
1: Women's courage and accomplishments have helped shape and inspire acceptance of the LGBT community for decades, yet their contribution to the community have long been overlooked. Women's eNews, the award-winning global news organization, is excited to provide a platform to tell the stories of these inspiring women that helped pave the way and those who continue to strengthen and vitalize the LGBTQ community. Welcome to Where the L Are the Women. My guest today, Leslie Cohen, is the author of the memoir, The Audacity of a Kiss. She grew up in Queens and holds a master's degree in art history. Leslie, along with her wife Beth, is the model for the sculpture Gay Liberation by George Segal, which resides in Greenwich Village across from the Stonewall Inn. In 1976, Leslie and three friends opened Sahara, a groundbreaking, elegant women's nightclub in New York City. Leslie, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I just finished the last couple of nights your fabulous book, which is just So amazing. I really felt like I was just in that moment, in that 1976 club, totally envious of the the freedom and liberation that was happening at that time. And one of the things that really struck me was in the postscript of your book, you posed a poignant question. It was a question that really aligns with the mission of this podcast. On the significance of Sahara and its importance to lesbians and feminists at the time, you asked, why don't more people know about it? So I wanted to ask you, do you feel that gender discrimination really establishes that women's experiences are less valuable than men's in the gay community?
0: I definitely do. I
1: definitely do. I mean, I, listen, I'm talking,
0: again, um, this was done in 1976, and I can tell you that the club was opened in 1976. And for 30 years after that, not one, there was not one mention of Sahara in any literature, and it just frustrated me because it really was a groundbreaking club in so many ways. I mean, especially since before that, the the clubs were Mm -hmm. mafia-owned. That's the way it had to be because up until 1974, the DSM delegated gay queer people as mentally ill. So this was a groundbreaking club. And the fact, and it would frustrate me to to no end, that no one mentioned it. And with all the people that came to this club and, you know, all the celebrities and all the the important uh, women feminists at the time and gay and lesbian leaders, that it wasn't included in any literature. So yes, I really felt, as I would be reading articles in different journals and magazines, Mentioning all the great clubs of the 70s, like Studio and all the men's clubs, The Saint and, and blah, 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 which were, of course, very different clubs than Sahara in many ways. They were grandiose, very large clubs that held, you know, probably thousands of people as opposed to hundreds. But I felt that they were being acknowledged in a way that Sahara wasn't because Sahara was as significant in, in other ways for women, as these clubs were for gay men and, and the cisgender community. So that was very frustrating to me. And I tried to understand why that was. And I really do think that uh, women's experiences are not as
1: valued as, as men or the heterosexual community which is why we wanted to start this podcast why we wanted to elevate these stories so that they don't kind of die on the vine so that we can continue to recognize the role that women have played in this community because it is so often overshadowed by men's contributions
0: yes. and that's a historical given you know we know that's the way it's been throughout history and so you have to kind of dig now to find out about what women contributed or or what their lives were like or What made them who they were at the time? You have to really dig and dig. And I didn't want that anymore. I don't want to have to dig. I don't want to have to be on the pile of forgotten history. You know, so that's why I wrote it.
1: One of the things that really kind of struck me as well was, you know, you're in your 20s. Like this was not, you know, you're not a fully evolved woman at the time when you decided to take on this mammoth task which it was a mammoth task at the time to open your own club along with three other women now for anybody not of that generation it was very challenging, right? For in terms of, you know, acquiring credit, women were not allowed to apply for credit and you needed a man to co-sign your liquor application. But you continue to be persistent because, you know, from what I read in the book, your experiences of women's bars and, you know, entertainment areas that were set aside for particularly for for gay women were just lackluster, almost dive bar-esque by comparison. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Well...
0: This is, this is interesting I, and I really have to give credit to my partner, Michelle Floria, all mm-hmm. right? She was the engine that really got this going. I mean, this was a kind of w- woman that was aggressive, all right, and fearless. Mm-hmm. Now I was in the art world. So I came, I was a curator, all right, at the time. And so intellectually, I had all these ideas but I could not have done this without somebody with a lot of gumption, right? A lot of gumption. And Michelle was that person with that, with that kind of drive, you know, and nothing would stop her. You know, at as, as times I would think it was totally unrealistic, but she just kept going. And we uh, included two of our other friends, Linda Goldfarb and Barbara Russo. So, so that kind of group mentality fostered each other during our, you know, when we would have doubts or anything like that. But it, it kept happening. It kept unfolding. Even at times when we thought it would never happen, it just, we just, it took another step forward. And again, I, I really credit Michelle for that. She's a ball of fire and still a very, very close friend of mine. So she got it going. And then when it happened, you know, I kind of stepped in more at that point than any other point to to embody my, my ideas and my thoughts, which were based a lot on what I had read in my art history experience, which was to foster this kind of salon, you know. Oh, also lots of dancing and music and craziness and all the other stuff that comes with club life, but to add that extra, that extra uh, layer of, of politics and art and live performance. It was a group effort and we we supported each other during our times of weakness.
1: So you have this beautiful place. It's sophisticated. There's fine art on the wall, some of which, you know, the artists would go on to be very accomplished artists of the uh, 21st century. And, you know, you have this beautiful, beautiful location. There's dancing, there's live performances, but you wanted something more. You wanted it to become more of a movement. It was a meeting with Alex Kukka, I think her name was. Alex Kukka. Uh, who Another person
0: sorry. who I'm very indebted to,
1: yes. There was a meeting with Alex that where you would discuss, discuss the possibility of bringing some political fundraisers to the event that included the likes of Elaine of Noble, Gloria Steinem, Gilda Radner, Patti Smith. What kind of transpired during these times and what was the temperature like? How were these events like kind of received by the guests at Sahara?
0: Well, you know, it was interesting because this was the second wave of feminism. But yet, but in the early, in the late 60s and early 70s, when this came about, it was more of a radical fringe. You know, there were moderates, of course, like Gloria and Betty Friedan, but it was also, you know, the radical fringe that got a lot of attention and oftentimes negative attention, you know, as man haters or whatever. But we wanted to bring the ideas into a, into our, into a more broad broadened audience. And by bringing these political people into the club and doing these benefits, we were able to expand the audience to women who may not have been totally cognizant of what was going on, but in in, in their hearts and souls felt the the camaraderie with feminist ideas. So it was the same thing with, with hanging the art on the walls. You know, you didn't have people who were necessarily familiar with it, but just by a kind of like a, 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 how do you what's the word? You know, just like amorphosized into- Osmosis. Osmosis, thank you. They started to feel the greatness of the art, even though they didn't quite understand it. So that's what would happen with the politics. If we brought in if we did a benefit for Elaine Noble or for Carol Bellamy, who ran for city council president, and we'd have these people come in and they would talk to everybody, everybody felt it. But I mean, really what, what brought the, the, the crowds in, of course, was the names. Mm. It wasn't the politics per se. It was that Jane Fonda was appearing at the club, you know, and they had, had to see Jane Fonda. But through osmosis, they started to understand what was going on, and they started to incorporate these ideas into their lives, and that was our goal. So I could actually see, which is what I loved about the club, women of all walks, of all economic uh, strata, of every different kind of women together in this club, receiving these these new ideas, Mm -hmm. and watching this transformation from the radical left, moving into a, a broader audience. And that was our, that was my purpose. I mean, I really, really loved it. I use an example in the book about Patty Smith, you know, yes. where Patty <laughs> Smith gets up. And, I, mean, I was
1: going to just check if I was allowed to use the T words if I, or if I could actually, I? I, I, no, can I might do need that? to believe it, but I think we can say, I think we can say it. All right, I'll, tr- I'll you'll believe it, but I think
0: they'll get it. So here we are, right? We're in we're in this this moment of transformation in terms of feminism, and Patty Smith gets up on the stage, and we have a lot of radical lesbians in the audience, who've come to see this event, and Patty Smith reads from her poetry, and she starts to use the word tits. With a capital T. With a capital T. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, you know, she's aggressive and yelling and blah, 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 blah. And the women start bullying. Mm. The radical feminists start bullying. And other women start cheering because the newer generation is enamored with her boldness. Mm. And it's coming from a woman. So that objectification that radical feminists subjected to so much, which was understandable, was now being incorporated by younger women to say, look at this, here's one of our own. And she has the, the power, mm-hmm. the self-confidence to be able to do this. And so it was, again, it was, I was watching that actual transformation wow. right at the, you know, in this small club with all these famous women there, <laughs> you know, it was just remarkable. That was
1: remarkable. When I read that, I was, you know, I'm thinking about kind of the theme of this book and the energy that exists throughout this book is like, you know, it's sex, it's liberation, it's drugs, it's disco, it's all of these things that it surprised me to hear the life kind of be sucked out of the room when she comes and so boldly starts yelling tits. Like, yes. it just didn't necessarily compute that that would be the case. But, you know, you you framed it so well that it was something that had been used so, as such a derogatory term towards women by men That's right. throughout history, that it was, it was a new, it was revelatory to be able to reclaim that. Yes, exactly. And so, so exciting.
0: Exactly. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was one of the highlights for me. I mean, I just, I just, I sat there and I watched it, you know, and I just said, this is history. This is why I am watching history, you know? The spread of these ideas and the incorporation into the zeitgeist of these ideas and the effect the effect on the newer generation of women you know we're still mid 70s you know we're still uh, big changes still big changes
1: it struck me that you know a lot of the women that were attending these and, and it, obviously it makes sense for the time but a lot of the women were living these kind of duality lives like they were married with the children in the suburbs and then at night they were coming to Sahara and having these love affairs with these beautiful women. There was one particular story in the book that where a gentleman had come to us to retrieve his wife shall we say from the club. Tell us, uh, share with us that story. It it definitely gave me a laugh.
0: It was really funny. You know one of our busy nights you know we were packed. These three guys you know, big guys, obviously straight, come to the door, and and say to the bouncer and our, our, our the woman at our, at our door that there that his wife is in there and he's got to find her. You know, he's got to, he's very angry and he wants to find her. And of course, we're not going to let three beefy guys walk through this club filled with women. So we said, look you know, we come up, our door person is hysterical. She's like a nervous wreck. And she's saying, you have to come up. They're here, they're pushing their way in. So we come up and we, we say, look, we can't let you in, obviously, three of you. So why don't we do this? Why don't you tell us who she is? We'll go look for her. And if she's there, we'll tell her, you know, you're here. So we go up. Of course, we see her, you know, and dancing hot with a, another woman on the dance floor all over each other and we go up to her and we say your husband is at the door and she is freaked out and she said I don't know what I'm going to do and I said all right this is what we're going to do or one of us said it we're going to hide you in the stairwell we had an exit stairway to the de- to the outside you know fire exit we'll hide you there and we'll tell him we couldn't find you she said okay so we hide her in the stairwell We go back down to the guys We say, look, we can't find her. If you want, we can escort one of you through and, you know, the other, both of you wait here. We escort the husband through. He doesn't see her. They finally say, "Okay, we're going to go. And we go on with our night and we're just dancing and carrying on and And then it's the end of the night and everybody's like exhausted and the staff is exhausted. Everybody's gone. And. We're sitting in the lounge and all of a sudden we hear somebody screaming, let me, out, let me out. And it turned out that we had forgotten that she was in the stairwell. So oh we had went goodness. up, we let her out. She was all bedraggled. But anyway, so, you know, we had stories like that. We really did. I, I mean, know. a lot of these women were very closeted. Mm-hmm. Most of us were closeted then. This was mm-hmm. 70s. You know, there was the fear of losing your, uh, your job losing your children. So everybody was pretty closeted. You know, I mean, the fact that we opened the club brought us out of the closet in a big way, which is one of the reasons that I got to model for the sculpture, because I was out and many people weren't. And that's, um, but there were a lot of stories like that, a lot of fun, a lot of hysteria, a a lot of camaraderie, a lot of love.
1: Between How all great life. for women to have this sanctuary, this this refuge in the yeah. midst of a time when it was just so against, you know, social experience to be yeah. out and homosexual. And so many of these women in the, in your book have, you know, like like have these uh, families at home, these these husbands, these children, and then they come and live this dual life in Sahara. It must have felt so fulfilling to them to have a safe space space to go at the time.
0: It was such a sense of freedom. Mm. And and love, and I have such a uh, a deep love for the community. What what existed in this space, you know, like I describe in the book, as you're in this space and you're safe, and you're allowed to be whoever you are. And then at the end of the night, you open that door and you go out back into the world. You know, with those second avenue noise and the, and, the, and the air hitting you in the face and the light coming in from the break of dawn, you know. But for all those hours, you were allowed to exist as who you truly were amongst a community that loved you. You know, it was such a feeling of love, you know. It just, it would, it would elevate me. It would really elevate me. It was very spiritual in its, in its way.
1: So in the 80s, we went on to have approximately 200 lesbian bars in the United States. Now, in 2021, there's only 15 left. You know, in many ways, that's because we're no longer deemed a fringe group. You know, we're no longer outsiders. But with this, do we lose our ability to inspire change and to push for the continued feminist and LGBTQ rights that matter so deeply?
0: They did the um, lesbian bar project when we were made aware of how few lesbian bars there were left. And, you know, I was, I was interviewed a few times and I, I just felt, and I still feel this way there is nothing like going to a bar where it's all women. Hmm. You know, I just love that feeling because I love women. You know, listen, I used to, at Sahara, we would be a women's club, but we would always allow them to bring male guests especially if they were gay guys. You know, with straight men, I was a little more cautious because I didn't want that sexual innuendo in any way, you know, any kind of threat to them, to women. But to have an all-women space, I mean, it's just a feeling that, first of all, I I don't understand how women could not want that. Hmm. I mean, don't you want to go to a place, and I'm talking, you know, in terms of cruising, don't you want to go to a place where you know who you're you're cruising and, you know, you know what you're getting or what you're not getting. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't understand. You want to dance? You want to hold? You want to party? You want to be with the other women. So I, I just don't get that on, a, you know, on that whole, I mean, listen, so much about the club is meeting up and, and, and connecting sexually with another woman, if you can, eventually or whatever. So, you know, I, I just, the need for community to me is just, you know, I can't imagine why there's there not being uh, lesbian clubs. Mm. You know, all, all women clubs. You know, we always considered, I always considered Sahara club for women. I was very much a feminist, even more than I was, I would say, a, uh, a fighter for uh, gay and lesbian rights. I, I really felt that it, we, women were all welcome at the club. And, you know, of course, the majority were um, lesbians. But as, you, as we can see from the benefits and stuff, a lot of straight women took advantage of it. So, and that's what
1: I wanted you talked about Sahara existing at that intersection of gay liberation and feminism, but initially lesbians were rejected by, you know, a lot of the feminist movements, especially the national organization of women calling lesbians lavender menaces. Yes. Do you, yes. do you believe, which is awful, and <laughs> so loaded, but do you believe that Sahara's mere existence helped to kind of uh, assimilate that wave of feminist concepts?
0: Yeah, I, you know, Rachel, I think that when new movements start, and this is a controversial statement, I know, when new movements start, they want to distance themselves from what they consider the radical. Mm. And it happens every time there's a new movement. So, you know, um, Betty for Dan. You know who was one of the founders of NOW, and you know wrote that a classic book in 1967, felt that lesbians were a, a detriment to the acceptance of feminism on a broad scale. That the you know maybe because of the radical lesbians, they would that the the public, the broad public who was who they were trying to win over, would say, hey. You know these are man haters. I'm not supporting this. You know, this happens over and over again. But as time progresses and and it, and these these ideas become more acceptable, the radicals, what we began as the radicals, who are always the forefront of all of these movements, integrate with the broader movement. So here we have, for an example, Betty Friedan creating this idea of the love and the menace, and then coming to Sahara to appear for these benefits. Mm-hmm. And it was only a few months later that at the um, National Women's Conference, I think it was like two months after she was at Sahara, that she apologized for calling lesbians the Lavender Menace and fully accepted them into the women's movement. I mean, it was these lesbians who were at the forefront of the beginning of feminism. So, so this happens over and over again. You know, it was the Jean O'Leary who was one of the major and a wonderful woman, one of the major uh, forerunners of the uh, gay and lesbian movement, who didn't accept transsexuals or transvestites, you know, initially, and then apologized. You know, it's just because you didn't want to. You, they didn't want to be. They didn't want the movement to, to be to be characterized by the extreme. What they considered the extreme, as opposed, and now of course it's totally embraced. You know. We were all fighting for transsexual rights. And so this is just an evolution that happens slowly with every movement that seems to me. You know, uh, the gay rights movement, I mean, Stonewall. I mean, this was started by a fringe element of the gay and lesbian community. These were the considered the outcasts, the people who didn't have jobs, you know what I mean? The street kids, you know. Did we want, when the movement started to formalize and, and did we want these people represented as the forefront? No, this was the Marsha Johnson's, you know, of all these people. The mirror, the mirror, yep. And this is and this is what happens. And then it's, we finally get past that because it is accepted on a broader level. But it's, you know, I know it's controversial for me to even discuss that, you know, to acknowledge the fact that people are put to the sidelines who are so important to the beginnings of these movements. They're shoved away because they're not gonna appeal to the broad cisgender audience that we're trying to win over. But eventually, eventually
1: it comes around. It just has to take time it speaks to the power of visibility, right? And the importance of visibility, why we need to have ally, we need to bring allyships into our world so that they can, you know, people are influenced and, and opinions change when they experience, you know, a gay person or a lesbian and have a human experience as opposed to what media is telling them. And it seems that that's what happened at Sahara on so many occasions.
0: That's exactly it. We were able to, to bring the media in, even though we have always had, a and I've, I talk about this in the book, we always had a, a walk a very fine tightrope because obviously my goal was to make queerness more visible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had to protect my clients because if they were outed in public, they could lose their jobs or their children. You know, I mean, this was really scary stuff. In terms of the sculpture, again, like I said, I mean, I opened this club. I was, I came out in a very big way. But initially, David, who worked at the Sydney Janus Gallery, which was where George Siegel was represented, said, you know, would you model with this other woman? Who I knew. She was a professor of art history. And I knew her well. You know, she was a wonderful woman. But she was frightened. Hmm. that she would lose her job and so when I suggested Beth who I was in love with and we you know together and I said listen you know he said she was more than willing to say sure do it do it I don't
1: really want to do it you know and thank goodness it was Beth (laughs) not this other woman
0: otherwise I wouldn't have written this book. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Les I want to take you back a little to the earlier days before, the pre-Sahara days. And one of the things that I was struck by is you have this boldness and this fearlessness throughout the book, but at the same time, it's juxtaposed with your fear of heartache and sometimes your fear of acceptance. You shared early on in the book that you grew up with a father that was often absent, spending some time in prison, having extramarital affairs. And it brought to mind the quote by Mary Gordon about how a fatherless girl thinks all things possible and nothing safe. What impact did your father's absence and also your mother's resilience have on you?
0: That's a good question, Rachel. Right. I think, well, first of all, it, it brought me. My father's absence, I think, gave me a, an appreciation of what women of my mother's generation went through. And of course, it totally influenced me and other feminists down the line, because there must have been a lot of other women who experienced this. That total dependence on a man for sustenance,
1: mm.
0: for economic well-being, and sort of entrapped women. They couldn't leave because they had no skills. They had no ability to take care of themselves and their children at the same time. They were trapped. I, I think that instilled in me a, a real sense of the unfairness of what it was for women in our society. And I still see it. You know, we can see it now with the pandemic. And then it's all it's these women who have worked so hard in their careers, having to leave their careers, to go home and care care for their children. So here's my mother with two kids, a a man who's unfaithful, you know? She really was too frightened to do anything, you know? She couldn't do anything really, uh, she had no skills. I would see other, when my parents finally separated and got divorced, I I got to know other women who were friends of my mother. It was a very small group then, because back in the 60s, people didn't get divorced very readily. It was very infrequent and very rare, and it was kind of shameful. It wasn't something I, I shared with friends or anything about the problems that were going on in my home. I was very private. My mother was very private. But I would see her friends, too, and I would feel so, such – it was so unfair. Here these women were. they brought up these families. They worked and supported their husbands as much as they were you know, supposed to. They were devoted. They were loyal. And suddenly these men left. They just left. Some of them, you know, uh, my father was not that kind of man. He supported us, but these men just disappeared and left these women abandoned them with their children, and didn't pay child support. Nothing. And these women were totally unskilled, and you know, and you know, they had to somehow pick up and and make something happen for themselves. It just seemed so unfair to me. And that was a lifelong lifelong wound, I guess, or a realization that there was such inequity amongst the genders. I mean, you know, the men ran the world and it was so clear to me and I felt it was so unfair. And also, you know, the fact was that I was a very, in a, in a sense, I was a very, I was accomplished as a kid. I could do a lot of things well, you know. My brother, sweet, sweet guy, he's no longer around, was was very damaged by my father. He was a very sensitive boy and he was not what my father wanted. My father wanted a somebody who was going to be a professional lawyer. He wanted somebody who was going to have an easier life than he had. And he focused on my brother and I was left in the wind, you know, because he grew up thinking, listen, she's going to get married. She'll marry a nice guy. He'll take care of her, you know. But that's not where I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what I saw for myself. And I often wondered, why does he keep talking to my brother who didn't have the same attributes that I had instead of talking to me, who was the one that was going to be able to possibly accomplish what he wanted, you know? And it was because I was a girl. Mm-hmm. So that also struck me as like, oh, man, this is how the heck are you supposed to do anything, you know, except follow that norm of being married and having children, which I never felt comfortable with. I never, I mean, I said, okay, I'll get married, you know, but I'm 26. I'm not married. I'll marry my best friend, you know, that kind of thing, which so many other women do. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that kind of stuff had a long-term effect on my sensibility about, you know, gender inequality.
1: When you were trying to accommodate yourself within the perception of how women should move around the world and behave around men. You compared it to feeling like you were wearing an itchy wool sweater. And I really felt that. I really felt that that emotion, that metaphor, just it resonated on so many levels. And I, I appreciated the metaphors that you used throughout the book, the book, particularly the art-related ones. Another one that really stood out was... You talked about a night where you had some breakthrough, shall we say, with recognition of your feelings towards women. And you compared it to a Duchamp masterpiece that was delivered to a museum and then actually smashed. The glass broke. Uh, you used that metaphor uh, to articulate your first kind of self-discovery that you may be possibly attracted to women. What did it mean to be able to break through your personal glass wall? Oh, heaven.
0: Heaven. You know, you, you think, you intellectualize on so many levels, you know, as an art historian, you're introduced to all these women who well, not all, I mean, some who were written about or who were who, who were who were writers. And I mentioned Anais Nin and Colette, Vitasak for West, Virginia Woolf. You're reading about these women in the early part of the 20th century and you're saying, wow, there are women out there who are really, wow, they, they, they were slept with other women? Oh my goodness, you know? And... Within the context of the time, which was really, this was the early 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, when there was this kind of revolutionary atmosphere coming out of the 60s, you know, of free love. And we started to consider these ideas, at least a small, you know, a group of us who were, you know, studying these things and, and talking about it and we're friends and, and you start talking about bisexuality and, you know, but it's theory. It's theory. And then you say to yourself one day when something like there's a possibility that somebody comes onto you, another woman, and you say, well, why is it theory? Why don't I do this? I mean, gee, collected. <laughs> I collected mean, wow! I mean, these fabulous women, why can't I just let it go? You know, why can't I just do it? And you do it. And suddenly you become something other than what you've always conceived yourself to be. You become the possibility of of being unusual. Mm. The beauty of being unusual. The beauty of being different. The beauty of being daring. The beauty of being possibly an artist. You know? And that's something that if it inherently with me, whether I was an artist or not, that's who I always wanted to be. You know, in my deepest soul, regardless of the fact that I didn't have the talents, But... (laughs) That's what I wanted. So it was a sense of freedom, breaking down boundaries of like, finally, I'm free. Finally, I did something that's not supposed to be okay. Mm-hmm. And yet it felt so right for me. And it felt like, ah, now, you know, it took time after that, of course, to like get to the point, you know, it's coming out as, a, you know, made up of many stages. So this was the first breaking of the glass.
1: I loved your coming out story with your mom, how you had this element of betrayal really from your brother who essentially outed you. And you were so fearful about getting that call from your mother. You know, you eagerly await the phone call and have this sense of impending doom, but it was not not what you expected.
0: My mother was my best friend. And I adored her. I could cry now. Oh, and it's been 37 years, so you can imagine. She just, she just was an incredible woman. Um, extremely honest. She said what she, thought, you know, what she felt. There was just no bullshit about her. And so, yeah, I was petrified of losing her. But the truth is there had already been a distance. I wasn't sharing so much of my life with her because, you know, I was gay. When I found out she knew i was I was so frightened, but she had this ironic humor about her always that's how my mother and I survived to you know during these things with my father and him being gone, and whatever. we used to laugh make jokes, you know there was a song called "Daddy's Home." I don't know if you remember. you used to go, "Daddy's home." We would always sing that because he was never home <laughs> so um that was the, the fun that we had together so you know there she gets on the phone she said so I heard the good news <laughs> so I heard the good news <laughs> so, you know, and it just cracked me up because she was just funny and that was it you know yeah, listen, yes she always said look I wish you were you know I would have liked you to be straight because I want to make sure you're taken care of mm-hmm. which is ironic in itself since you know she was straight look what happened with her you know, and with a lot of the men that, that abandoned their wives, or so children. But she was fine and, you know, she, she loved Beth. She was very much a part of our lives.
1: So while you were busy carving out a place for women to live, love and liberate, you yourself were also falling madly in love with wonderful Beth, yes. your partner of 45 years, now, your love, your love story actually spans five decades, almost six. So tell us about you and Beth. Tell us about, a little bit about your love story and what your secret to five decades of marriage is. Mm. I um,
0: met Beth my freshman year in college in Buffalo State. She was the first person I met, the first freshman I met, which was so crazy. She was absolutely magnificent looking. She was just a beautiful woman everybody you know everybody was would look at her I mean she was just gorgeous. you know you couldn't help but be taken aback when you, you know when you saw her and so we met and we became friends that freshman year. Uh, we both loved jazz, we both loved dancing, and so we would meet and dance and carry on and blah 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 but you know again, never thought there was i was I was basically I didn't know what I was sexually. I certainly wasn't uh, in any, any headspace where I could admit to being gay. I mean, that was just not something you would admit to in 1965. You know, it was, you'd be filled with shame and, and, and just totally ostracized if that's who you were. So that was not going to be something that I was going to even entertain. But, you know, I think a lot of my sexuality came out in dance. That's how I expressed myself. Bethy and I just had something. It was, it was undefined because we couldn't define it. it. It definitely was an attraction for each other. But who knew? You know, I didn't know the words. I didn't know ha- what, how, to, how to explain what was going on between us. But she, at the time, she wanted all my attention. And it was very unusual because I was very social. I was getting away from my family and, and, and the agony of, my, the, of, of that conflict in my home And I was just wanting to party and fly and carry on. And I was always in trouble. You know, I was always getting in trouble. And she was like kind of like meek and, and, you know, didn't want to. But I just made crazy things with her. We, We carried on. But she wanted my attention and it kind of kept me, I felt locked in. And she was obsessed with this guy. Who she had been with since the age of twelve, and it just kept going on and on. And every time we talked, and finally I said to myself, I, I have to move away from her because I want to. I want to have a good time. I want to be happy. I don't want to be. And she was very depressed. So we kind of separated. And then she, in our sophomore year, I went off to Europe to study in Italy. And when I came back, she had transferred to back to New York to Hofstra to be with her, the guy that she had left. And eventually, she married him. We didn't see each other for 11 years. We ran into each other very briefly, which was so peculiar at a Morgana King concert. (laughs) Now, Morgana King was a jazz singer. And the the fact that, I I don't know is, whenever it was at Lincoln Center, I was with Michelle who I was living with at the time. And she was with uh, this guy, Stephen. after she divorced Lance, she was living with uh, a guy, Stephen. And we saw each other. It was like, it was so appropriate that it would be at Morgana King, Lincoln Center, because she was kind of an obscure, you know, she wasn't a well-known jazz singer, but so anyway, but we really came together 11 years later at a mutual college friend's garment showroom. And they they recognized each other, that's friends from college, and we all had a get together. And we got together and I, I... she came, They all came to my apartment, my college friends and her, and I just was. Now I was out. Now I was gay. Now it was like maybe a month before I was going to open Sahara. She was with this guy, Stephen, and there was nobody in that room but her and me. It was so strong, the connection. It had never changed. It was always that way. But now I understood it. Whereas before I did, this was 1976. And long story short, she moved to Woodstock with Stephen. And I went up to visit her with my lover at the time. And uh, she came to the opening of Sahara with my college friends. You know, we all danced. And had, and I said, oh, my God, I'm in love with this woman. <laughs> but, you know, she's straight, so forget it. And But anyway, we ended up being together. She um, eventually left Stephen. and.
1: That's what happened. 45 years later.
0: 45 years later.
1: Love for the ages.
0: Yeah, crazy, crazy for her. Um, yeah, she's, she's, my, she's my angel. She's my devoted, loyal friend. And uh, there's just, uh, it's, it's been really a wonderful ride. It's been a wonderful ride. Which is another reason I wrote the book, so that people know that they can have a wonderful ride. Mm. You know, there are young people out there who think their lives are coming to an end because they just they realize they're gay. Mm. That's not that's not the way it's it is. And it doesn't have to be just hang in there. Hang in there. You'll find your way and and there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy in in
1: being queer. Yep. A lot of fun. I'll second a lot of love. So in 1979. The artist George Seagal was commissioned to create a gay liberation public art sculpture to commemorate the Stonewall Riots. And you and Beth were the models for the sculpture. And these sculptures have become iconic. They are visited by millions. Celebrities have taken photographs with them. But it wasn't until 92 that the sculptures were actually unveiled because there were quite a few challenges along the way. Can you share a little bit about what what you went through during that time and perhaps fill uh, our listeners in on the uh, grotesque stereotypes?
0: I know, that was funny.
1: We posed in
0: 1979. Uh, It was so interesting because it was only a few weeks before Sahara was closed. So I always wonder if it was fate, you know, it's like a, you know, I'm going to take Sahara, but we're going to give you this. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was friends because I had been in the art world with David Boyce, who worked at Sydney Janis. I hadn't spoken to David in a number of years because I w- left the art world and opened the club. David called me at the club one night and said, would you model? And I was honored. I said, oh, my God, of course, I would love to. And, and I, you know, like I said before, I asked if Beth could model with me. So we went up to George's studio, which was in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And we, uh, we modeled, we went at the consecutive weekends. And then it just, nothing happened. Year after year after year, nothing was happening. And we started to see that there was of course, objections from the certain people in the uh, community in the village, you know, not in my backyard kind of thing. It was still a pretty homophobic society there was a group of of gay activists who also were not happy with the idea that it didn't represent literally the uprising at Stonewall. Excuse me, because it was created, the sculpture, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Stonewall, the uprising. But it was never meant to be a literal, you know, scene of the battle, you know? It was supposed to be a broader idea of gay liberation. But there were folks who felt that it should be Inclusive of of black, uh, Latin, you know, it's the kind of thing that happens often with when you do public art. You know, it's it, you get a community that, it, that that focuses on the inclusion of everybody, and that's very difficult when you have a, an art piece, you know, with an artist that has a certain style and is seeing it from his perspective. So you oftentimes, you know, you can't do what. People want uh, as a political statement. You know, you have to get the the sensibility of it uh, on a broader level of, of love and inclusion. And again, like I said before, there are steps that have to be taken. That sculpture at that time, in order to be accepted in any way, had to be almost middle of the road. You know, again, it couldn't be a radical representation. What, what the broader community thought of as a radical representation, it never would have been accepted. The fact that there was an 11-year battle to get it in, the way it looked now, is, right. it should be exemplary of that fact. So I think the sculpture is a beautiful sculpture, and I think it had, says so much, and it... it And I'm so happy it finally did get in. But there was a lot of of that kind of combativeness. And uh, I remember when we went to this hearing, which is in the book, and they had somebody had written about us and called us grotesque stereotypes, which was the furthest thing from the truth. You know, I mean, they were thinking of, you know, the grotesque stereotypes are very butch, which, you know, I'm, I'm not... Shame to say I'm kind of butch, but, <laughs> you know, but Beth certainly was not. And, you know, David and, and the other guy also was was not typical stereotypes, uh, but they called us grotesque stereotypes. So we came to the hearing wearing T-shirts that said grotesque stereotypes. And every and then, we, you know, I got up and gave my little speech and said we had the grotesque stereotypes referred to in the New York Times article. And everybody cracked up laughing and, you know. But it was it was something. And then finally, finally, I got the call. It was two weeks before we were moving out of New York to Miami because I became a lawyer and I got a job offer in Miami, that the sculpture was finally going to be unveiled. And we all went to the unveiling. Um, We had a ball and David Dinkins was there. And there's a whole other story, which I won't share.
1: (laughs) I read it. Folks, you have to read the book for this X-rated uh, That's right. That's story. The X-rated <laughs> That's in the uh, in the outtakes. You can read, read Leslie's book for that story. It involves the subway. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I love
0: it. <laughs> anyway, you know, so because of that gentleman, we were like became you know I mean David Dinkins and we were just hanging out and and you know it was it was a, it was a wonderful celebration and my mother came and. You know, she kept yelling, I'm the mother,
1: I'm the mother. That really moved me when when I read that, you know, thinking about your mother's journey and thinking about what you've shared with me today, you know, how she could never leave, right? She could never have that courage. She might have the courage, but it was so not a possibility for women of that time. And for how supportive she was of you when you came out, how loving Loving. and to then support your, your relationship with Beth. My mother
0: also had this side that was very unconventional. mm. She loved shocking people. (laughs) This was something she just loved to do. You know, she was very mischievous. Her and her sisters, who I adored, the three of them, were very mischievous. I mean, they just, you know, they grew up in this time where you just, you got married, you had kids, you depended on your husband. But Mm. they were so mischievous and so filled with life and love, you know but anyway that's my mom
1: yeah to to stand there in that moment when those sculptures are being unveiled and it's this poignant day and you have your you know your lover of many decades your mother accepting you and knowing that your life and love is essentially memorialized forever outside this this historic monument how does that feel
0: oh i'll tell you it's grown with time you know, it's kind of like at first, you just don't realize the impact. You know, you kind of understand it in, in, in a certain way, but not in an actual real way. And with, with time, it starts to become realer and realer. And, and you all of a sudden, like, see, you go to, the, you know, when we go to New York, we haven't been to New York because of the pandemic in a couple of years. But anytime we go and we go to the sculpture, we walk by and we sit there and we go, I can't believe this. This is insane. It's beyond. Our imagination, and then if you tell anybody, you know, if we go and we say to anybody that we were the models, they they go wild, <laughs> they go wild, you know. With with you know, it's it's just remarkable, and it's what again. I had to write the book. I had to I had to let people know, this is a love story. It's just not too strange these are two women that were, lived their lives, and this is what we went through, and, and we're forty five years into it. You know, Amazing. yeah,
1: Leslie, fifty-six. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Leslie, for the work that you did for oh. the hearts and minds that you influenced. You truly helped pave the way for women like me to live in a world where it's a little bit more OK to be gay. And, you know, we have a long way to go, but we hope by continuing to tell these stories and, you know, that we get to kind of preserve the massive contributions that women like you have made to this community so that they won't be forgotten. Leslie's book is out now, folks. Go check it out. All right. This has been Where the L Are the Women, folks. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Women's E-News podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe. And to learn more about Women's E-News, please visit us at womensenews.org. It's completely free to subscribe.